Good morning. We are in lesson seven of our study of spiritual gifts, and we're talking about spiritual gifts in the book of First Corinthians. I have a friend who's now with the Lord, but when he was uh, still alive, he uh, had a medical condition in which his blood pressure would drop dangerously low. And one on one particular occasion, it was so low that he was in the emergency room and the doctor was preparing the family for the fact that he would likely die. And he sort of whispered to the family, people can't live when the blood pressure is this low. And my friend responded from that bed and said, what's the record? (laughs) You know, that's kind of the way I look at the church at Corinth. You know, if you were doing a medical workup on this church, you'd wonder whether you were getting a pulse. I mean, there are so many problems in the church at Corinth, and it's almost like they're saying, what's the record? Well, I think they've said it, whatever it is. So when you come to the book of 1 Corinthians, you come to one of Paul's epistles, but it's not going to work out the way that Romans and Ephesians did. In in the book of Romans, Paul approaches matters theologically, and as I suggested, he starts with man's inadequacy, with man's sin, with man's weakness, and he moves to the provision that God has made for men in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When you come to the book of Ephesians, you see that uh, Paul starts with God and with his eternal purposes. And so you see him working out those purposes in his church to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all fullness dwells and to do that through the church. Now, when we come to 1 Corinthians, we come to something that is not dealt with starting at a theological point. Rather, it will end on a theological point. And it's a problem-centered approach. This church at Corinth is a problem church. And as you saw from those texts, they've got all kinds of of moral glitches in their lives that need to be addressed. Paul is not dealing with these matters randomly, as I understand him. He is dealing with them in a very logical way, and he is moving from the particular symptoms that start with division all the way through until he finally comes to the source of the problem, which is a theological source in chapter 15. So I want you to understand when we when we approach first Corinthians in this lesson, this is the first of several lessons on first Corinthians. So uh, don't expect me to say everything that there is to say about spiritual gifts uh, in first Corinthians in this message. Remember, this is the most extensive book in terms of its coverage of spiritual gifts. You're talking about chapters 12, 13, and 14. Extensive dealing with spiritual gifts, and sadly, to some degree, dealing with them from a problem-centered basis. So we're yet to look at some of the more additional detail that will come up in, in the following lessons, such as a, a more in-depth look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And we'll start on that in chapter 12. 
the first half of chapter 12, next Sunday, Lord willing. And I want to take a closer look at the spiritual gifts that have been named, not only in the book of 1 Corinthians, but also in the other epistles that we've addressed. I'm going to talk about the issue of of temporary versus permanent a bit, too. I think we need to, to talk about that and to focus especially on the gifts of tongues and prophecy. And then we'll talk about the relationship of the spiritual gifts and their exercise in the meeting of the church, And finally, we want to talk about how spiritual gifts may look better in Community Bible Chapel. Now, I want to come, first of all, to to the sufficiency of God's provision in spiritual gifts for for the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. And and I have to say that that this text looms larger and larger in my mind the more I look at 1 Corinthians, the more important this text is. And it is no wonder that we find it at the very outset of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. So look with me at verses 4 through 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. I take it that word grace encompasses not only his saving grace, but also the grace that will come in the form of spiritual gifts. For you were made rich in every way in him, in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge, just as the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this, this statement is so packed with theological truth, I can't, I can't begin to underscore all of the elements that are important. He talks about waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, we're going to discover that there are many, or at least some, who are verbally, vocally attacking the doctrine of the resurrection. They are not waiting at all for anything. They are saying that let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the end of it. He says that they do not lack in any spiritual gift... Now, think about that. Here is a church where you've got people who are discontent with the gifts that God has given to them. And you've got, it would seem like most people are not looking at their own gifts, are not exercising their own gifts, but they are seeking some other gift, and I would contend primarily one gift, that the whole church is looking for. But I realize from what Paul is saying here, they don't lack any spiritual gift. They don't lack it. They may not like it, but they don't lack it. They may want something else, but they don't lack it. God has richly provisioned that church with everything it needs in in the realm of spiritual gifts. That that causes me, just as a, a brief aside, it causes me to ask a question about our church. Do we think that when God brought us into existence, when he formed us and fashioned us as a church, that he deformed us and that we're somehow lacking, that we're lacking in spiritual gifts? I know, for example, that I've prayed for the gift of evangelism, but I prayed for it as though it wasn't here. 
And I'm beginning to ask myself, is the problem that the gift is not here or is the problem with us and our exercise of gifts? Is it here and not being used? Maybe because someone doesn't want that gift or they fear the use of that gift. But this text tells me that this church, as sick as it was, was richly provided with all that they needed in the area of spiritual gifts. It wasn't lacking gifts that was their problem. And notice it says, you were made rich in every way in him, in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge. You know why that fascinates me? Because when you start looking at the errors, as we will in just a moment, what is it that came along to the church at Corinth that was so bad? People who were somehow offering wisdom that the church at Corinth didn't have, so they said. But I would contend that the church at Corinth was richly provided with everything. That's what Paul says. You weren't lacking in knowledge, but why are these people coming and offering you knowledge? You weren't lacking in in the ability to speak. Why is it that these people who are so slick in their methodology of speech, why is it they're so important to you as though you were lacking when he says you weren't? That takes me back to a text in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Think about this. Paul says, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The Lord's Supper this morning, somebody took us back to Genesis. But think about this. Think about the fall and the fact that God had richly provided Adam and Eve with everything they needed. Is that not right? Everything they needed. And all God said was, you may partake freely of all of these things, just don't partake of this. And slick-talking Satan comes along and says, you know that tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's really what you need. You need what God hasn't given, what God has withheld. And it seems to me that what Paul is saying to this Corinthian church is, you guys are living the fall all over again. God has richly provided you, and here come some slick-talking dudes who say you don't know all you need to know, and you need to hear it in some special way, and you're buying the package. But Paul says you are richly provided for in all of these ways. Well, I could linger long. I better move along. Problems in the Corinthian church. The first problem is the problem of disunity, and we see that in chapters 1 through 4. And one of those texts that was read to us is in uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together to end your divisions and to be united by the same mind and purpose. For members of Chloe's household have made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. It's, it's like saying, it's either Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or Christ. And if you had those four groups, each one of them would say, this is the one. Well, let's look at some of the symptoms of the problems in, uh, of disunity in the Corinthian church. 
quarrels and schisms, chapter 1, verse 11, for example, and what I call personality cults. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't Paul. It wasn't Peter or Cephas. It wasn't Apollos. In chapter 4, Paul says, I used our names because I want you to figure out by filling in the, the blanks, you figure out who it is, and, and those names are going to change. But I'm only using those names figuratively. So it isn't, it isn't the apostles who are somehow uh, out there rivaling each other for followers. <laughs> you could have believed that before the death of Jesus, but not after. And, and so it's, it's these personality cults. People are finding their identity in a person. Bad news. A modified message proclaimed with slick methods. It's a message which somehow feels the necessity to move away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ and his cross to some other wise, philosophical, uh, exciting message, and it's done with the most persuasive of methods. And uh, Paul simply corrects that in contrast as you look at what he says uh, going on in chapters 1 through 4. He says, first of all, I came to you preaching a simple message, Christ crucified. (laughs) The old Johnny One note, Paul, you could believe, is going to have the same core message wherever he went. And that simple message is not done with sophisticated, uh, smooth uh, uh, methodology, which which is manipulative. He says it is simple proclamation in the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will take that message and drive it home and bring about the results God intends. He thinks in terms of stewardship, chapter 4, not ownership. And he thinks in terms of suffering. Notice that he'll say in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, he speaks about the suffering that he's willing to endure. Those guys never talk about suffering. They talk about status and success and good life and all that stuff. Paul says, here's what we're willing to endure for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think with me into chapter 5 and through chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's as though what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I've told you in a, in a sort of simple outline fashion, I've told you what the problem is. Divisions caused by personality cults that are led by people who are leading others astray by changing the method and using slick, uh, the message and using slick methods. And Paul now is saying to us, in effect, let's see how it's working in your church. How are things going at Corinth? Given this new direction, this new progressive motion that's taking place in the Corinthian church. Chapter 5, he talks about this person who is living with his father's wife. Now, I used to think that the primary focus was on this one individual. And, and, and that certainly is there. Paul says, I have chosen from a distance to exercise discipline, and you ought to remove this leaven from the dough of your church. He will corrupt you. But I think what Paul is really doing here is focusing on the moral softness of the church itself. And he's saying, how are you as saints? This is a sin that is so great the heathen are clucking their tongues. They're saying this is evil. Corinthian 
pagans think this conduct is wrong. How is the church responding? He says, you're proud. You're proud. I I don't know whether they had a slogan out that says, uh, uh, you know, unconditional love. We accept everybody. I don't know what it said, but the bottom line was they were proud of the fact that they were harboring sin in their midst. And Paul is saying, look at the first outcome of, of what's happened to your teaching and ministry in your church. You've gotten soft on sin. You won't even discipline sin that the world thinks is wicked. Chapter 6. I call this linking morality with legality. I I think this is a really significant thing. I think we can see it in, in our nation, and I think we can also see it now in our own lives, in our own church. Basically, people are saying these days, if it's legal, it must be moral. That's the test. Is it against the law? By the way, notice how the laws are changing. More and more things are getting legal these days. Therefore, more and more things are getting moral, quote unquote, these days. And so they've linked legality with morality. And that's why they're out suing each other, because they want their rights. And if it's within the law, they're going to get their rights. And so they're taking their cases, Paul says in chapter 6, they're taking their case before unbelievers so they can do these things that they want to do. And, uh, and you know there's a lot of immorality associated with that. Chapter 7 is a fascinating chapter in that it tends in general to look at marriage, but it extends outward because, remember, he talks about contentment and he says to slaves, if you're, if you're able to, to get your freedom, go ahead and do it. But, but there's all kinds of weirdness in the church at Corinth, and it's weirdness of different types, and I've never seen this until now. He addresses it in, in different ways because there are different forms of, of, uh, of sickness within the church starting out. There are those who say, remember he says, concerning those things that you've written to me about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So I take it that the first error he's dealing with is that error in First, in first Timothy chapter 4, where it says they are forbidding marriage. So there are some who come to piety and they say the really pious thing to do is just to avoid sex altogether. And, <laughs> and Paul says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. One, it's better to marry and enjoy the pleasures of sex than to burn. And if you are married, don't think that you can now shut off that valve and and say to your mate, sorry, he says, you have rights, you have responsibilities to your mate and you should fulfill those. And he says it because when you are living in a Corinthian society, if you are not being satisfied in your home, you're only setting yourself up for being out there in the world. And that's obviously not the way to go. There were other people who wanted to multiply marriage. <laughs> that was the way they were going to really be happy. And so they wanted to move from this marriage to that marriage. And Paul says to them, stick with it. Stay with your marriage. You're not going to find happiness by moving around from one marriage to another. Stay with yours. Don't try to get out of that which you've entered into by covenant. Keep your covenant. And then there are those 
who seem to be looking at marriage as though that's really the way to find happiness. And I suppose they hear Paul in those first parts of, of 1 Corinthians 7, and they're saying, yeah, you know, my life will really be fulfilled. My life will really be happy if I could only find a husband or a wife. And Paul always does a twist on them. He says, maybe you ought to think about staying single. Isn't that interesting? He says to the people who want to stay single for the wrong reasons, think you better get married. He says to the people who want to get married for the wrong reasons, maybe you should stay single. And he says, the real goal is undistracted devotion to Christ. That's the goal. And if you can marry and you can pursue that, great. But you need to think about what you're doing and why. And, and so when I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I see that it's a hodgepodge of all kinds of, of messes in the church. And Paul has a little different take for each one of those groups. Chapters 8 through 10, the problem with foods offered to idols. My understanding as this, as this argument uh, unfolds is that it isn't just an issue that you face when you go to Kroger's. Uh, and you and you have to decide as this meat somehow been offered to idols and it's it's some kind of discount meat. I think what Paul is really dealing with is people want not only to have the meat, they want the meal that goes with it, and they are going to heathen festivals. Now I think that's that's clear in chapter ten. It's not clear in chapter eight, but then there's this sophisticated argument that's going on. Now, remember, these are the folks that now have all this new knowledge. Somehow, Paul says they weren't lacking in knowledge, but these teachers have come along with this new kind of knowledge. And Paul says, let's take a look at that knowledge. Let's let's analyze one little slice of this knowledge that's come into the church. And they say in chapter eight, well, in terms of meat offered to idols, now, that's setting aside Acts 15, which basically says avoid it. I mean, it, you could just go on the command level and say, hey, do we even need to discuss this? Paul lets him play it out because he wants you to see how crooked their thinking is. So they say, well, look, we know that there are no other gods but God. And idols are simply a representation of a god. So if there are no other gods than God, then all these idols are meaningless. Therefore, I can eat meats offered to idols. I mean, doesn't that sound really clever? It's wrong, but it's clever. Paul does not immediately say that is the dumbest argument I have ever heard in my life, although it is. It is. And one of the things I'm going to say now, because I may not get to it at the end, don't let Paul's introductions be your conclusion. Twice he will deal in 1 Corinthians with a problem and he will let the error stand for a moment in order to play it out, to show you where it's leading. Believe me, at the end he'll kill it, but not at the beginning. And so here he says, let's just grant your premise for a moment and let's suppose that's true, but everybody isn't as brilliant as you are. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everybody's as smart as you are. And so some people still think it's wrong to eat meat off, offered to idols. If your practice of eating meat offered to idols causes your weaker brother to stumble by eating it, he's violating his conscience, he therefore is sinning. And if he sins, you caused it. Therefore... What you have done is exercise your liberty at the expense of love. So it's my liberty or 
my love for my brother. So even if you could have done it, it would have been wrong given where it led. But he's not saying you could have. He's letting you just play that out. Then in chapter 9, he shows how he surrenders his liberty, the liberty to be paid for what he does, the liberty that other apostles exercised and with no condemnation. It was an absolute right. But Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, I chose to set aside this liberty of being paid so that nobody could say he's in it for the money. And they had to scratch their heads and say, what is this guy about? He doesn't even, he not only doesn't take pay for what he does, he doesn't pass the offering plate around. He goes to work and he pays for us. You got to say, that's an amazing thing. Paul surrenders his liberty as, as much as it is a right of his. And finally in chapter, I say chapter 9, verse 24, the tail end verses of chapter 9 through chapter 10, he basically says, flee idolatry. And here's what he says. He says, let's get to the bottom line of what this is really all about. It's not about some intellectual argument about whether or not eating meats offered to idols is really permissible. The real issue is you love your belly. You love the food. That's why you want to go. You want the meat. And he says, take a look at what unbelieving athletes are willing to do. They're willing to deny themselves of many good things at the dinner table and elsewhere. Not all things, for sure. But they're willing to deny themselves of those things that will keep them from achieving their athletic goals. Shouldn't Christians be willing to set some things aside for the sake of the gospel? The answer is yes, of course. Then he goes to Israel's history, and he goes back in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and he says, you know, I can sum up what all of that's about. It's all about idolatry, and it's all about self-indulgence. And he said the problem with Israel in the wilderness is they didn't know the word no. They didn't deny themselves of those things. And then he comes to the end and he really drops the hammer. They said, there is no other God. So idols are meaningless. And he says at the end of chapter 10 or toward the end of chapter 10, he says, when you go and sit at their table, let's just suppose it was Saturday night. You go and you sit at their table and you participate in their heathen feast on Saturday night. And Sunday morning you come and you sit at the Lord's table. On Saturday night you sat at Satan's table. That is the table of demons. That's what he says. The table of demons. You sat there at the table of demons and now you sit here at the table of our Lord. Does that make sense to you? You wonderful, brilliant, philosophical thinkers, chapter 8, who have all knowledge... That doesn't square with me, Paul says. And therefore, he says, whatever you do or don't do, do it to the glory of God. And he says to them, don't go there. He allowed them to play it out in chapter 8. He makes it clear in chapter 10, don't do it. It's wrong. But my point is, that's the whole mindset of the Corinthian church. It's all about indulgence. And by the way, false teaching almost always is. If you do not appeal to the Spirit, to what can you appeal as an unbeliever? The flesh. Isn't that why Peter in 2 Peter talks about those false teachers? They not only hold out the flesh and all of its pleasures to you, they indulge in it themselves. That's the appeal. 
False religion lets me do what I want to do and to do it in, this, in, in a mindset that says this is really right. So can you imagine here the Corinthians says, I'm going to church, dear church, meaning the, 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 the pagan temple and all of the wickedness it contained. Well, that sounds great to a pagan. It gives you the ticket to indulge yourself. Chapters 8 through 10. Now, my understanding of 1 Corinthians is that when you come to chapter 11 and you play it out through chapter 14, what you see is all of this baloney that is now seen in its manifestation in the church. I believe, for example, when Paul is talking about the lack of submission that is characteristic of of some of the women, I think that comes right out of heathendom and probably where they've been on Saturday night. I think when you come to the misconduct at the Lord's Supper, where they're not waiting for each other, they're gorging themselves and they're getting themselves drunk, isn't that exactly what they did the night before? I think they're bringing heathendom into the church. And Paul is dealing with that, and he's saying, this is wrong. So in chapter 11, he talks about things pertaining to the Lord's uh, table. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he talks about spiritual gifts. Now, here we come to the bottom line, chapter 15. I think this is the theological root of all of it. Paul didn't start here. He starts with the symptoms, and he works his way through those to show us how rotten things were. And now he's saying, let's talk about the root of this issue. What is really here? In chapter 15, starting at verse 30, he says, Why, too, are we in danger every hour? Every day I'm in danger of death. In other words, why do I suffer? Why do I minister in a way that may end up in my death at any moment? It's in the context, remember, of the resurrection. Huge chapter on the resurrection. And and Paul says this is a fundamental, essential truth of the gospel. You can't do without it. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, why do I go out and flirt with death every time I preach Jesus? (laughs) It would be senseless. Instead, he says... If the dead are not raised, late verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Isn't the logical conclusion of no resurrection, no judgment? Second Peter, that's what the false teachers are saying. Everything's going on just as it always has. There's no judgment coming. No judgment, no future hope, as Peter described in the first Uh, Peter chapter 1. And therefore, if you are going to have any pleasure in life, you better get it now because there isn't a future. The doctrine of the resurrection opens, the denial of the doctrine of the resurrection opens the door to every evil that we see in 1 Corinthians, including the minimizing of Christ and his cross. My friends, is it not true that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, everything that he did pertaining to the cross is worthless? Do do you see why it is so critical to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you retain this doctrine of the resurrection? That's what makes his death so powerful. By the way, Ephesians, Paul said that the, the, the gifts that are given to the church are commensurate with the magnitude of the victory of Christ when he rose and ascended to the Father. 
if you deny that resurrection and ascension, you basically said, gifts. What are they worth? Nothing. So it seems to me that chapter 15 is the critical mass, the critical core. I'll say something very briefly about chapter 16. And that is, this is the conclusion. Notice he talks about their contribution in the first two verses. And I call this expect company. You better believe company's on its way. Paul, he may not be able to be there quickly, but he'll try and send anybody he's got in sight. It'll come help clean up the mess that's going on at Corinth. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming to collect the gift. And And he says, in effect, and you better watch out. Because if this thing is as messy as it is now, I'm coming with a big stick. Now, that's a paraphrase, but it's not far from the truth. Then he says, I'm going to send Timothy. He will remind you of the thing. This is chapter four. He will remind you of my ways, which I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy's going to come and he's going to point you to my example, not these characters, but to my example and to my teaching. He's going to remind you. And then he says, I love it. I love this verse where he says, and, and I really wanted Apollos to come too. And I leaned on him. But Apollos told me to buzz off. He'd come around when he was ready. Now, it doesn't quite say that. But don't you love it? Paul doesn't boss Apollos around. He just says, I really wanted Apollos to come. But he said he's got things that he's got to tend to. He'll be there when he can. So Apollos is going to be there in time as well. And then those verses 15 through 18, where he talks about the household of Stephanus. Basically, what Paul is saying is, you want to follow a leader? Follow men like this. Here's the kind of leader that I commend in the church at Corinth, in contrast to these other guys. Now, here's what I decided to do, given the time that I knew it would be. I decided that what we need to do is to focus on the characteristics of a healthy church, and the characteristics of an unhealthy church. And it occurred to me that when you look at Ephesians, without borrowing too heavily from other places like Romans, which we certainly are free to do, but when you look at, a, at the church uh, as it's described in Ephesians, you're looking at the church in its ideal. <laughs> when you look at the church at Corinth, you're looking at a church that's just flat gone to pot. And and so the question is, when we look at the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we ought to see that when Paul approaches the subject of spiritual gifts, he's dealing with a very carnal church that has all the gifts that it needs, all of the divine provisions it needs, but somehow it's messed up royally. And therefore, we better not look at Corinth as the ideal church. Would that not be true? If you're going to make your argument related to spiritual gifts, you better do it very carefully in 1 Corinthians. It would be like making your argument on the book of Judges and saying, well, this happened in the book of Judges. Yeah, a lot of stuff happened in the book of Judges, and I wouldn't recommend most of it to anybody. So be careful what you do with 1 Corinthians. But let's look at it just for in conclusion. Let's look at it this morning in terms of what are the characteristics of a healthy Christian what are the characteristics of a, uh, a healthy church? And what are some of the earmarks of the lack of health that would cause your doctor to look down his bifocals at you and say, I think we need more tests uh, or worse. We need surgery or something. Take a look. 
Obviously, in Ephesians, the healthy church is characterized by unity, is it not? In fact, is it not true that spiritual gifts require unity in order for there to be a real healthy body? And my guess is that one of the ways in which churches can divide is over spiritual gifts. And you've got this church that it thinks only this gift is right, and this church thinks only that gift is right. You need, you need the body and the multiplicity of gifts. So you've got unity versus divisions as you find them in Corinth. You've got growth toward maturity. Isn't that what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4? That the whole body, as the gifts are ministering to it and the body now ministers to itself, it is growing up into Christ. It is, it is characterized by spiritual growth and maturity. What does Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, or 3 verses? I came to you and I wanted to speak to you as mature people, but I couldn't because you're still great big babies. No maturity at Corinth. Well, they think they're wise, and they look down their nose at people like Paul, but the truth of it is, they're immature. Not very healthy. Doctrine is foundational in Ephesians. I mean, would we not agree chapters 1, 2, and 3, not to mention a whole lot of 4, 5, and 6, but 1, 2, and 3, the whole foundation is doctrinal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, You'd better be careful how you build on the foundation. The foundation is that which is laid by the apostles and the prophets. You better be careful what you do. If you damage the church, God's going to be on your case. So, doctrine is foundational. In Corinth, it seems to me doctrine's a drag. Yeah, theology. Yeah, you know, what's so important about this? And, And just to bring this into a little sharper focus, friends... These are issues that are happening in contemporary Christianity. You've got the emerging church movement. You've got other factors going on. And in effect, you've got people who profess to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who are saying, you know, I wrestle with that too. And, you know, we just just don't know for sure. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're literally compromising doctrine for the sake of dialogue. I've got to tell you, that's not the way Paul did it. Doctrine is not a drag. It is foundational. The church in Corinth demanded its rights. What do you think they're doing in court? I want my rights. That's what it's all about when they think they have the right to eat meats offered to idols. I want my rights, no matter whether it sinks the ship of my brother or not. Paul says the gospel is all about surrendering your rights not demanding your rights. How are we characterized in that regard? Are we people that are going around with a chip on our shoulder just looking for the rights that are ours? Are we entitled people who get upset at the thought of forsaking something that we think is a right? Here's one that I think is critical. The church at Corinth sought the sensational. I think that's really clear. I think that's really clear. And in the process of seeking the sensational, I think they missed the real. Now try this on for size. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they're not lacking in knowledge, they're not lacking in speech. But somebody's coming along and saying they are, and they're offering something different. What's wrong with that picture? What's going on there in Corinth? The stuff that they had... (laughs) All right, let me try this on for size. 
What did the Israelites say about God's provision for them in the wilderness? We loathe this manna, right? Didn't they say that? Yeah! Manna again? Fried manna for breakfast, boiled manna for dinner. I'm sick of manna. What did they want? What did they want? Something, ooh, somebody said it, what? Something spicy, something spicy, did they not? Leeks and garlics, we want something spicy. They wanted something spicy. They didn't want something that was dull and mundane. And I want to suggest to you, Ephesians chapter 4, when you look at the exercise of spiritual gifts, folks, exercising your spiritual gift may be cleaning up somebody's mess. I mean, literal mess. See, we don't, we, when we think about spiritual gifts, we automatically start thinking in spectacular terms and not in everyday terms. Just roll up your sleeves and start cleaning up messes. That's what it's about. The mundane messes of life, not the sensational self-gratification rather than the glory of God. It's all about me. No, it isn't. It's all about the glory of God. Whatever you do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do it to the glory of God. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4 about the exercise of gifts. But many people want gifts for how it makes them feel. Fulfilled, satisfied, important, powerful. I got to tell you, that's not right. I call it a sleazy message and slimy methods. Well, that's probably a little loaded, but isn't that really true? Isn't it a message which has diluted Christ and the gospel and elevated something else? Elevated men, for one thing, where Paul speaks about speaking the truth, truthing, actually, in love in Ephesians chapter 4. Corinthian church characterized by immorality. And yet in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul begins by talking about what true love looks like. And you don't spell love, L-U-S-T. It is a four-letter word, but it isn't spelled the way our world says. And Paul says some of those things that are characteristic of the world we shouldn't even talk about. The Corinthians were fighting about them in open court. Something's wrong with that picture. Soft on sin in Corinth. Taking sin seriously is obviously the biblical ideal and the mark of maturity. If any one of you sees a brother overtaken in a fault, those of you who are spiritual, come alongside. Personality cult. It's all about one man. It's all about some personality. You hitch your wagon to a personality star. I don't care who it is, folks. I don't care who it is. The truth is the church is a body and it has many members. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They're saying in chapter 1, it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And Paul says, you got that all wrong. Think about farming. One plants, one waters, one sows, but God gives the increase. What he's saying is it's all of us. It's all of us. It's not one of us over the others. It's all of us. We function together in a corporate way 
to bring about the purposes of God. It's not about one man. And any time, no matter how good that man is, any time that man becomes too central and too important, we're all in trouble. Insubordination. Well, it seems to me it's definitely there. And uh, you just have to think in Ephesians chapter 5, the various ways in which submission is evident in the church and in the family. Corinth, eat, drink, and be merry. And uh, the model for maturity, endure hardship. Knowing that our hope is laid up securely for us, our inheritance in heaven. Present gratification versus future hope. So I simply say, this is not a bad final exam. It's not a bad pop quiz. Just ask yourself, where am I? Where am I in the continuum of those things? When... uh, I had my annual physical, you have a blood test, and you get your blood test back, and, and, and it says, you know, here's the normal range over here, and, and, and here's your one sick puppy over here if, if you fail. Or it had the same thing with my car getting inspected. You know, you got the normal range of pollution and emissions and whatever. Man, if you're over here, you're in trouble. And I simply say, you know, here's the, here are the benchmarks. Here's what maturity And health looks like in the individual and in the church. And here's what sickness looks like. And the reality is, folks, all of us have a little sickness in us. Some of us more than others. And that's what Corinthians is trying to expose. When we come to spiritual gifts, we have to reckon with sin. Because sin can minimize the impact of gifts. It can distort the purpose of gifts And that's not what it's all about. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians, and we pray that you would guide us as we come back to this great book and its teaching in in future weeks. Help us to understand what it says. And I simply ask that not only would you make it clear to us as a body and as individuals the ways in which you have endowed us with everything we need, but we pray, Father, as well, if there's someone here who has never received the gift of salvation in Jesus, that you would make it clear to them and they would trust in him. In his name we pray. And Father, we thank you now for the food that's been prepared for us. Uh, and we pray that you would, uh, you would encourage our guests to be with us as we, as we fellowship and as we eat together and that we would do that appreciating your goodness to us and praising you in Jesus' name. Amen.